Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, I speak with Nirali Zaveri, co-founder and CEO of Frizz, a fintech for freelance workers. Nirali, who previously worked at MasterCard, talks about starting Frizz after realizing that freelance workers are completely underserved by banks due to their project-based income. We talk about Frizz's word-of-mouth go-to-market strategy across Southeast Asia, and Nirali tells me about the human cloud of the future and her New Year's resolutions. Frizz provides financial services including debit cards, credit cards, and invoice financing to freelance workers on platforms like Upwork and Fiverr. Frizz was founded in February of 2020. They raised their seed round in September of 2021 and were part of Y Combinator's winter 2021 batch. You can learn more about them by visiting usefrizz.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform. And we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels keynotes uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Nirali, thank you so much for being here. You know, you went to SMU, Singapore Management University, and graduated in 2017. Um, and then I believe you spent a few years working at MasterCard on payments and digital solutions. So I've got to ask, um, you know, you decided when you graduated to go directly into fintech. So I wanted to just ask why fintech and then why MasterCard? Sure. Um, while I was in university, um, I was reading economics and finance. Um, and I was really, really interested about financial inclusion at that point. I felt like designing meaningful products uh, that can reach um, large audiences can actually really, really help to solve for a lot of uh, issues and inefficiencies that exist uh, you know, in, in developing economies, uh, specifically very interested in development um, economics as well. Um, and because of that passion, I felt like I always wanted to build a company in the financial inclusion space. Um, but um, to me, it was important to get an understanding of different business models in the fintech space before I delved deeper into building my own company. And I decided joining a card network was a fantastic way of doing this because they touch so many different verticals. They touch so many different stakeholders. Um, and, you know, they are 
in a very, very, I guess, systematic way, um, changing the framework in which people, um, you know, interact with each other, in which commerce happens. And so I think, um, yeah, it was, for me, that experience into MasterCard was super helpful in terms of getting a really good bird's eye view of the fintech space. And that was my intention with, with getting started there. It's also where I came in touch with a lot of different pain points that I could really delve into deeper and solve. And it's also how I learned a lot about um, the issues that freelancers face with finance. Yeah, thanks, Nirali. Um, I think that is such a thoughtful approach, especially for your, I guess, your first job out of college. Um, I remember when I graduated, FinTech was still in its very early stages and after the financial crisis um, in 2008, I was like trying to stay as far away from the sector as I could and only really came back to it actually similarly through financial inclusion and microfinance. But I think that is such a smart, thoughtful approach that you've taken. And I want to come back to the point around freelancers and kind of forging your interest there. But first, I want to quick um, ask about MasterCard because MasterCard is a global company um, headquartered in the U.S., and I'm just curious, what was it like working for a global financial services company in Singapore when you're kind of on the other side of the world from, you know, the head office? Um, I think it was it was great working for MasterCard. Uh, obviously, there are lots of problems that need to be solved um, and, you know, lots of new countries that we were entering into as a part of uh, the Asia Pacific division. Um, it, I think it was it was always it was always great uh, to see a lot of people working towards, um, you know, financial inclusion and really enabling a lot of small businesses to start accepting payments, for example. Um, so I would say the mission kind of obviously trans translated really well, uh, whether it's Asia Pacific or any other region. But yeah, with, with any other large company, there's um, issues in terms of, uh, you know, where exactly, product development is situated um, and that always slows down companies over someone that's having a localized approach and able to deal with uh, designing products for people on the ground. Um, so I think, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a difference between a startup that can really localize and launch something really quickly versus a company that's, um, you know, has a certain way of doing things and, and going to market. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like it's more about the size of the company rather than the geography, because yeah. we're, we're seeing a lot of Western financial service companies moving into Southeast Asia. All of big fintechs, Revolut, Monzo, those guys are trying to tap into the Southeast Asian region. Do you think that's a good thing? Or do you think that homegrown startups in Southeast Asia have an advantage over these players? I think it's definitely great that the you know global fintech scene is noticing the potential Southeast Asia has um, and entering the market, um, but but I think they kind of face the same issues um, in the sense that because most of their product development and and how they've designed features um, are with the Western consumer in mind, um, they're finding it super difficult to localize and kind of expand into um, products that people in Southeast Asia need. One example is, is use cases like lending, for example. Um, you know, they've been pretty successful in terms of enabling payments, enabling multi-currency accounts. Um, within, you know, the, the bounds of regulation, there are lots of restrictions there as well in terms of whether they can really be treated as full service banks, et cetera. 
but um, yeah, they found it really difficult to actually integrate additional use cases along the lines of lending, insurance, you know, investments and savings, so on and so forth. So um, even, even there, they're having to actually approach every single country in Southeast Asia one by one, just like any localized startup would. Um, and I would say localized players have the advantage of being able to, one, really understand the audience that they're serving a lot better. And two, uh, being able to, uh, I guess, be more agile in terms of the product development itself uh, to be able to meet local uh, requirements. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And it sounds like you had firsthand experience with with MasterCard understanding some of those friction points that maybe kind of the Western MasterCard folks may not have have had the opportunity to to engage with just yet. So let's talk a little bit about that. I want to I want to talk about Frizz and the Genesis. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, those friction points, those customer friction points that you mentioned being able to see at MasterCard and where the inspiration came to start a finance company that's really focused on creatives, freelancers, people that may not have any other financial service provider that looks looks at their issues. Sure. Um, I was a part of the commercial payments team uh, at MasterCard, and I worked quite closely on small business initiatives. Um, I even kind of ran a conference for um, banks to better serve small business customers um, and was building credit cards for small businesses. It was actually during this time that, you know, I got in touch with a lot of freelancers. Uh, They basically told us that, hey, I am operating very much like a small business. I don't have a business entity, but I have all these needs uh, to be able to take on large projects. I need cash flow. I need to be able to um, ensure I'm I'm paying all the people I subcontract, so on and so forth. Um, And they were telling us how difficult it is for them to get business banking services, um, how they were unable to open business bank accounts since they didn't have entities to begin with. Um, and even if they got these services, they found it really difficult to get cash flow financing, um, to finance their invoices, for example, um, and you know to, to start approaching their um, work almost like a business. Um, on the other side, they were telling us about how they also don't get uh, a lot of services from consumer banking because they are also unlike typical individuals. Um, since they don't have a fixed monthly payslip, they weren't getting access to higher interest rates on their savings accounts. They weren't able to access personal loans or credit cards. Um, and, you know, just didn't have, I would, I would say, enough protection from a financial perspective, uh, whether it was in the form of savings, investments, or insurance. Um, so, yeah, all of this kind of convinced me to see if, uh, you know, our, our banks could actually build a product for freelancers. So I did approach a couple of different banks and, you know, tell them about the, the audience, but I always got the same responses from them. They'd say, hey, we really don't understand freelancers. We think these people are super lazy. Why aren't they just doing a full-time job? <laughs> the other response was, we had to completely change our credit scoring for these freelancers. We would never be able to uh, underwrite them or issue them a credit card because um, it's super difficult to, to project incomes for this audience. Um, and there's no way we can change our entire credit scoring for them right now. So yeah, I, I guess this was kind of a mix of the responses I got. 
that's when I decided, hey, if I this is a huge workforce trend um, and banking is just really not ready for it. Um, the best thing to do is to actually build something, um, build financial infrastructure for this audience from the ground up and really I would say the, the best approach I felt at that point in time was building my own company. So that's how I got started with Frizz. That's amazing, Raleigh. Um, I love that you so clearly defined, you, you saw the problem was right in front of you. And it sounds like you tried many other ways to try to solve it. No one was listening. And so you said, okay, I have to do it myself. I think that's, that's really yeah. exciting. That's great. And so I have to ask, I, I believe that Frizz started in Singapore. Were you seeing this problem in Singapore? Was it all over Southeast Asia? Why did you decide to start in Singapore? And how are you thinking about expanding, uh, if at all? Sure. Um, I think, yes, the problem exists in Singapore. Um, um, even though Singapore is such a developed financial market, um, we see that there are a lot of freelancers. Um, firstly, around 8 to 10% of the population tends to be employed um, you know, as, as self-employed individuals working in multiple different freelance roles. It may or may not be that you know they're earning hundred percent of their income from freelance, but they they tend to really rely on project based work. Uh, for us, it was important to test out the concept of Frizz within a mature financial ecosystem mm-hmm. to understand if you know there are there are takers for it because we know that the pain points in countries outside of Singapore and whether it's Philippines, in Indonesia, in Thailand, um, in Vietnam, in Malaysia are much worse for freelancers. So the fact that there's already uh, demand from it from freelancers within Singapore was a great way for us to prove very quickly um, you know, that, that this is a product which is required across the board. Um, so yeah, the main reason for picking Singapore was also there was a lot of great financial infrastructure we could get started off with right away and go to market really quickly and start testing. Um, and so we launched a product within five months. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it's been giving us a lot of good feedback that brings us closer to, to product market fit. In terms of our next few steps, uh, yeah, we, we see a lot of demand for this product in Philippines, in Indonesia, in Thailand. And, uh, you know, we have those countries on our roadmap for the next one to two years. Exciting. No, it sounds like a lot of really good growth and a really a smart way um, to think about your proof of concept in Singapore. Uh, when I think of freelance workers, you know, I think of social media marketer that I see on Upwork living in the Philippines or someone providing uh, legal work in Indonesia. That's That's been my understanding of uh, some of these freelance workers. But in fact, what you're saying is there is a market, even if it's a small market, it's in Singapore and it's much easier to test those folks. Um, maybe really quick, is, is my interpretation of freelancers as your target market correct? Like what are, what are these freelancers and creatives, what do they look like? Who are they? How may you know, our audience have engaged with them? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yes, freelancers, um, as, as we kind of deal with them, uh, we, we typically serve white collar freelancers that work on platforms like Upwork, Fiverr, freelancer.com. Uh, typically, they are designers, programmers, content creators, digital marketers, you know, accountants, lawyers. Um, they could also be coaches and teachers, etc. Um, the, the main, I guess, defining factor for these individuals is they earn on a project basis. They don't have a fixed uh, employment or fixed contracts over a longer period of time. 
And that's what makes them super vulnerable to um, not getting access to different financial products. So a lot of the Upwork Fiber folks, that's exactly who your target market is. And to that point, Nirali, how are you reaching your customers? I'm, are you reaching them individually? Are you reaching them via those platforms? Um, and then if it is via those platforms, how do you actually you know, connect with them, market to them, and, act- and get their data to do that underwriting that you talked about? Yeah, a lot of platforms have APIs uh, that they provide to third parties, um, you know, or we use uh, API data aggregators to be able to collect information. Obviously, it's in line with GDPR and and, uh, consent from the user. Um, But yes, so that's, I guess, the main crux. In terms of customer acquisition, we we apply both strategies. One is partnering with freelancing platforms, whether they're local or international. And the other is, um, you know, directly approaching customers and uh, kind of growing through existing freelancer networks. Mm -hmm. Freelancers are very interconnected. They spend a lot of their time uh, on Facebook, on Telegram, et cetera, within freelancer groups and communities. Um, And we leverage that. Um, I think our referral program is doing really, really well in terms of uh, customer acquisition. Absolutely. I can imagine how word of mouth, especially for this market, would be would be huge for, for Frizz. So that's awesome that you're tapping into all of those existing networks. So then I guess going back to the point around, you know, meeting this need of underwriting this segment that's really hard to, to score. It's really hard to see their data to verify their income. Their income may not even be stable, right? Because they're taking different gigs. How how are you able to look at their data differently maybe than a traditional bank or another fintech would? And how are you able to, you know, ensure that you're going to get repaid, uh, you know, after you do take a, a little more of a risk? Sure. Um, so, yeah, currently we work with lender partners that obviously enable us to uh, provide these loans without being licensed ourselves. We, we thought that was a consciously that was a, a good way to go to market really, really quickly. Um, in terms of the, the data and how that differs, right? So the important thing to understand is that these freelancers are earning income from multiple different income sources. Their income is also paid into multiple different accounts. So no single bank has a complete picture of how much they're earning. No single freelancing platform has a complete picture of how much they're earning. Um, so yeah, we start from a point of assimilating all of this income data, all these various income streams all into one platform, mm-hmm. um, and then being able to, to underwrite the customer. The important thing to predict is basically whether a customer will continue to remain employed six months down the line, a year down the line. That's usually the time frame that um, our, our products are uh, you know, applied for, and Typically, we do this by judging how in demand the skill sets are for a specific freelancer. Um, And within that, um, based on a cohort analysis, how their profile is performing on different freelancing platforms. That's really interesting. Uh, And I love the idea that you're able to basically uh, take bits and pieces of someone's financial life and put them together to be like a mosaic, right? You put it all together and it makes a complete picture. That's really, really amazing um, that you're able to do that. And I think, especially for some of these freelancers, they may not have stable income, they may not have assets, they may not have a credit history. But to your point, if you know that they're going to have based on previous patterns or, you know, whatever other factors you use to assess that they will have stable income, 
um, that's, that's a good way to predict their risk. Something you also said that I thought was really interesting is that you're kind of picking different skill sets that you think are going to be more in demand. And, and I love the ideas also as someone who's been trying to find ways to work remotely um, in the pandemic. So do you, does this mean that the growth of freelancers and some of these platforms is really going to disrupt the traditional nine to five um, business model, traditional salaried workers? Is that a thing of the past? Yeah, I think traditional businesses are seeing the value in terms of restructuring their workforce um, and are moving increasingly to a hybrid model where they're employing not only full-time employees, but also uh, building certain key, um, you know, I would say taking certain key skill sets and building remote teams around that. Um, the ability to hire freelancers anywhere in the world obviously means that um, companies can one, get a cost advantage, and the other is be able to leverage on a lot of uh, skill sets without spending a lot of time hiring for them. Uh, it also keeps them very agile and nimble from, from a workforce perspective. So we're actually seeing that move, um, you know, whether we like it or not, in terms of how companies are hiring and approaching that process. Um, in terms of whether freelancing is going to compete or take over, um, I would say full-time employment is, um, I guess, not, not something we're particularly worried about. Um, what we see is that more and more people are turning towards this. In fact, a lot of millennials and Gen Zs, uh, you know, if I was to give you numbers, you know, Southeast Asia and South Asia currently provides 70% of all the talent on platforms like Upwork, Fiverr, Freelancer.com. Increasingly, these people are also getting access to work directly through their own connections and networks. So we'll see them kind of branch out, not just limited to platforms, but um, branch out into building their own businesses, uh, you know, hopefully down the line. Um, it, majority of these people, around 80% of them are actually under the age of 35. Um, and, you know, are getting a, a huge, like a primary source of income from their freelance work, which goes to show that a lot of young people have really adopted this as a um, way of life. And, you know, over time, more and more people are just going to turn towards freelance. I, I think there's a way for freelance to exist alongside full-time employment, and that's the world we're preparing for. Got it. Okay. So all of the traditional employers don't need to be a uh you know, freaking out just yet. And I asked the question because, you know, from a fintech perspective in Southeast Asia, we're also seeing the rise of uh, a lot of startups focused on things like earned wage access, which has kind of a diametrically opposite, uh, you know, business case. It's that salaried work is on the rise. And we actually did an episode a couple of months ago with Toby Fisher from Wagely about earned wage access. But it's nice to hear, Nerali, that your view is that salaried workers and freelance workers can actually complement each other in a really nice way that makes, you know, the ecosystem work for everyone. One other group of workers that I um, wanted to ask about are maybe less of the white collar freelance workers, but more of the blue collared uh, gig workers. So the grab drivers that I work with um, every day. How how do you see gig workers fitting into this? What did you call it? The service cloud. Is that something that is also complementary to kind of a more blue collar gig worker economy? Is it is it competition um how do how do you know i guess all of these different types of employees uh and gig workers and freelance workers how do they all interact with each other 
Yeah, we think um, the line between different kinds of freelance work, so white collar, blue collar is actually going to be blurring over time. Um, we see a lot of people on our platform that could be, you know, uh, a digital ads consultant um, by the day. And then for a couple of hours in the evening, they're also, you know, driving grabs. Um, so we definitely think that people are going to be employed across multiple different platforms in the future. And we're very, very prepared to be able to support not only white collar, but also blue collar workers through first. Yeah, currently our focus is on white collar, but eventually we'll start building ways to onboard and uh, building infrastructure for even the, the gig segment, so to speak. Um, and I think that's kind of just how work will evolve. There's almost a sense of um, democracy in terms of people getting access to, you know, to decide what projects they want to work on versus just having one full-time job. Um, in terms of, I guess, my approach towards um, earn wage access, etc. I think there's definitely um, demand for that as well. But what we're building for is a longer term scenario where customers are, you know, not only um, gainfully employed, for example, with full time employment, but more and more people are moving towards that flexible uh, sector that currently isn't supported with financial services. I like that long-term view and the democratized future is always one that is uh, that we want to work towards. So that's, that's great. Nirali. I have to ask though, given that all of these freelancers are working on different platforms and you mentioned a little bit earlier, thinking about services like insurance, investments, et cetera. Have you thought um, and at all about how things like insurance um, could be um, ported over from platform to platform? Is this something that Frizz would be interested in providing uh, down the line, or are you strictly wanting to stay in kind of the debit credit space? I think um, we have already gotten demand from customers that want access to these services. And we've also been approached by partners that are interested in providing us with white label services or having Frizz act as an affiliate that's kind of almost representing a group of freelancers and giving them access to better rates because of that. Uh, we would definitely, you know, be exploring some of these uh, in a couple of months. Um, yeah, like, like I said, we don't strongly believe in building everything ourselves. Um, you know, if we can assimilate and create the right user experiences around giving customers access to these products. Um, we think that's off a lot of value. Um, and that'll be our approach. It'll be partnerships towards some, uh, you know, in some of these products that may or may not be the, the first few things that we launch with. Got it. I like that, you know, there is like a vision for a holistic solution um, for these, these underserved workers down the line. I also realized we went down kind of a rabbit hole there, which is a very fun rabbit hole. I'm glad we got to kind of dig into the future of work questions, but I think I'd started off on the frizz journey and we talked about founding and growing the business during the pandemic. One of the other aspects of the journey that I wanted to ask you about Nirali was um, being part of Y Combinator. Frizz was actually part of the YC 21 batch. And I wanted to ask you, you know, one, why did you decide to go through Y Combinator um, and I guess maybe what's, what are the most valuable resources or takeaways you got from the experience? Yeah. Um, I think for most entrepreneurs, Y Combinator is a huge dream, um, mainly because it enables you to 
I guess, build companies alongside partners that have been there for companies that have just created completely new verticals um, and, and changed the way in which startups function. So for, for me, um, being a part of Y Combinator was really important in that founder education uh, piece. I like alongside obviously running a company and building a business, I think the important thing for founders is to kind of invest in themselves um, and be aware of how they're building companies. So I always kind of recommend good quality accelerators for that purpose. Um, it, it saves a lot of time and I guess enables you to thrive or enables you to rely on um, networks and large com- I mean companies founders of other companies, partners, et cetera, that can really give you a lot of advice across more than 500 to 600 companies that they've built um, across the world. So I think that was one main reason for joining Y Combinator. The other piece was around um, getting access to investors, not only in Southeast Asia, but investors in the US. We're increasingly seeing a lot of uh, US-based investors um, investing in the region. (laughs) <laughs> and a platform like Y Combinator was uh, super crucial in terms of uh, getting out there and, and getting noticed by these uh, investors. So yeah, that, that was the reason. And, you know, I think uh, it, it's so funny. I have heard so many in- investors, especially uh, in the US, they just say, we're looking at who's in Y Combinator. That's how we're going to assess which companies we want to pick for XYZ region. So I'm really glad you got to take advantage of that. I do have to ask though, because Y Combinator, I guess, this past year, given the pandemic, has done a lot more things virtually, um, which is great because that means they can, you know, accept people from parts of the world that they may not have considered previously. And so that's really exciting. We're getting to see the world shrink a little bit that way. But do you find that it's the virtual format works? Um, and I guess beyond kind of the the founder knowledge and the connections to investors, how was Y Combinator? Combinator able to support you in like the local Southeast Asia context? Yeah, um, I think definitely the the virtual format worked quite well. Reason being, you know, we were able to, you know, be a part of all the Y Combinator talks, uh, take part in all our, um, you know, group mentoring sessions, as well as sessions with our partners, um, you know, at, at night and then run the company during the day. Um, if if we were physically, I guess, located away from our customers, from our team, et cetera, as founders, it wouldn't have been, um, I guess, a great way to, to build a company, know what's going on on the ground. So I kind of really liked the ability to be close to my um, operating audience, um, you know, while, while learning and, um, personally that that worked well for me in terms of other things that Y Combinator brings to the table I think it's definitely that mindset of um, you know really having that customer focus and building things that people want Um, that mindset in a lot of ways is very contrary and to how um, a lot of VCs um, think about growing businesses I think uh, there's a lot of signs or, or I would say a lot of focus on the wrong kinds of signs for success. People really in the media, et cetera, will be looking at how many rounds a founder is raising, how quickly they're raising these rounds and what succession, et cetera. And that uh, in a lot of times uh, erroneously gets um, converted or, or gets thought of as the metric of success. And the really important thing is, are you really understanding your customers, building something that has product market fit? 
So I would say that relentless pursuit of getting product market fit over glamour metrics, et cetera, was something that was really important um, that we learned from Y Combinator. Um, the, the thing about relevance to Southeast Asia, a lot of the Y Combinator partners have built companies and um, spaces, you know, that are similar, I guess, neo-banking spaces, et cetera, uh, across the world. So I think there was a lot of those teachings um, that, that, you know, we could get um, for a market that was just developing like Southeast Asia. Um, and so we relied on, on those um, pieces of feedback, definitely. Um, but, but yes, I think it was important for us to also kind of bring in a lens of uh, the region and be able to make those decisions independently of what we were hearing as well. So I would say, um, yeah, it's, it's no one can teach you exactly how you should be building your business, but there was a lot to, to take away from Y Combinator. Thanks, Nerali. I think that's really helpful insight, especially for any of the founders listening to this show who may be considering is, is that um, maybe not Y Combinator in particular, but any incubator accelerator, is that an avenue that they want to pursue? I think those are really great insights. Um, we're just about out of time. So I actually have one last question for you. Could be personally, could be for Frizz. Um, any resolution or goal that you have for the year that you are excited to pursue um, once we all put our brains back together after New Year's, um, you know, January 1st? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, um, you know, on a personal level, just want to be able to focus on um, personal health, whether it's physical health or, or mental health. Um, um, I think in COVID, a lot of people have like we've really changed the way we interact with um, people. So hoping to, I guess, get back to normal in, in as many ways as possible and have more physical meetings, uh, be able to meet customers, employees, et cetera, in person, that would be fantastic. Um, in terms of goals for the business, um, I think we're super focused on launching in Philippines really, really soon, as well as serving a you know larger customer base in the region um, and being able to grow the stickiness of our products and solution. Um, we want to raise our Series A um, around mid next year. So I think that's kind of a huge goal uh, that we need to reach um, in terms of getting the right metrics and feedback from customers to be able to raise that Series A. Yeah. Got it. That's awesome, Nirali. You are so thoughtful about you know your decision-making process. Um, so I'm sure you'll meet all of these goals, but I'm happy to cheerlead from the sidelines. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, for being our guest. And thank you for the audience, uh, to the audience for joining us. We really enjoyed this episode of The Green Room. Thanks, Nirali. Thank you, Amrita. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. 
And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritaveer.com to get more information, join our mailing list, or just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com and follow our Instagram handle, greenroomfintech. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.